Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. So hello and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Alonzo Wind. Alonzo spent 20 years as a career officer with USAID. He has extensive experience working on development projects overseas, including postings in Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. Before his time with USAID, Alonzo worked with a number of NGOs, including International Save the Children Alliance. He recently published a memoir called Andean Adventures. An Unexpected Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Discovery Across Three Countries. The book describes his early career in Latin America in a gripping narrative that begins with his experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador. He details the growth of his passion for development that eventually took him around the world and discusses the need to renew our support for humanitarian service. So, Alonzo, welcome and thanks for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Glad to be with you. Why did you write this book, Alonzo? You know, this is a project that, uh, on the one hand, uh, was decades in coming. I had the idea of writing a book about my experiences in Ecuador and Bolivia, frankly, back in the late 80s, 90s, and I procrastinated, and I picked up the project again and procrastinated further. And then finally, with the pandemic and all, uh, last year, I managed to pull things together and set myself the target over a period of three months to finally get this book together and to start working on the structure of a couple of other books. And I'm glad to have been able to do so. That's excellent. That's great. So tell folks, how did you end up in Latin America at the Peace Corps? How did that happen? Well, you know, I was caught up in the whole uh, vision and spirit of Peace Corps growing up in New York City. I went to Stuyvesant High School, one of the specialized schools in the city and was exposed early on to folks at the United Nations. I was kind of adopted as part of a class project by the folks at the Kenyan Mission to the United Nations in Manhattan. And that uh, kind of opened my my interest in terms of uh, international service as well. Uh, but I, I viewed Peace Corps as something that I would do in college for two years and then return back to the States. And as I tell the story in the book, that's not quite the way it happened. You went to Ecuador with the Peace Corps. What happened when you were there? What changed you? The experiences of living in villages and sharing the experiences, the joys, the celebrations, the suffering of uh, the people in the, the communities I lived in. I lived in first in a smaller town and then in a cantonal center, kind of like a county seat, were such that I just found myself with uh, a vocation that I hadn't expected. Traveling across uh, South America while on vacation as well, Peace Corps, led me to decide that I had something of a connection with other countries in South America. And I found myself with an invitation by uh, the people of an NGO, uh, at that time Foster Parents Plan, now I think they're known as Child Reach, to stay on after Peace Corps and be able to help them with their health program in Guayaquil. I had initially explored the idea of extending for a third year in Peace Corps. I had thought about the idea of service as part of this uh, program that they had back in the 1980s, linking 
American Jews and Israeli Arabs, but I just found a, an opportunity with a small non-governmental organization, NGO in Ecuador, to stay on for a couple of years. But in fact, I found myself married to the idea of staying on for much longer. And in fact, although I had joked about it at the time when I was going off to Peace Corps training, uh, which was in the thick of the political campaign of 1980 between uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, and John Anderson, that if uh, Ronald Reagan were to be elected, I wouldn't return to the States until after he was out of office. In fact, I really didn't return for any significant amount of time until the middle of uh, George H.W. Bush. Oh, my goodness. So tell me about where did you go in terms of so you went, you went, you joined this NGO. And how long were you with this NGO? I ended up uh, doing my two years as a Peace Corps volunteer, spending about three, four months traveling around, backpacking across all of South America. And uh, then came back and worked for another two years or so, two, three years with this NGO in another part of Ecuador in this uh, mountain province known as Bolivar which exposed me to the reality of the communities of the Quechua-speaking Indians across the spine of Ecuador's Andean uh, mountains. And uh, I found myself, uh, actually to make a long story short, headhunted by another small nonprofit coming out of Phoenix, Arizona to head up their program in Bolivia. And there the die was cast. In terms of your time at, at Peace Corps and in some of these small NGOs, could you talk about what what was that like in the in the early '80s doing that? I mean, it must have been a much more isolated experience in some ways, right? You probably couldn't make phone calls. You probably didn't have access to the internet. That sort of a thing. Absolutely. I mean, I was just reflecting on the fact that as a Peace Corps volunteer, I think I had a, a subsistence allowance they called it of about a hundred to hundred and fifty dollars a month. Now, for some of my friends and colleagues who were in small villages during their service, they actually could save some money from that because they were spending virtually no money in the villages, basically living in little huts that might be provided by a village, eating communally in the village. I myself uh, had to learn to save my pennies at the end of each month, waiting for the monthly transfer of that $150 in Ecuadorian sucres at that time to be able to survive on. And I had to prioritize whether I was going to be able to have soup or dessert. I probably couldn't afford to have both. <laughs> uh, working for small nonprofits uh, also was humbling. I, I, of course, had much more resources available at hand than I did as a Peace Corps volunteer, but it still was uh, a lesson in contrast between the kind of lifestyle that people working in nonprofits and in charitable organizations, in uh, non-governmental organizations had to deal with, and those that were living in the far-off uh, U.S. embassies, those that were working in the USAID missions. Even uh, while I was in Ecuador, I came to know the folks in the USAID mission in Quito, and I had my own sort of political understanding of Ecuador, but I did make some friends uh, as a volunteer in the health office of the USAID mission, and that helped me to have a eventually gain a more mature understanding of what they were trying to do. But still, their lifestyles were wholly different than that that I faced working for a small nonprofit. Talk about the value of the Peace Corps. You, know, you were a Peace Corps volunteer. Most people who do Peace Corps afterwards are real converts to the importance of it. Is Peace Corps about development, global development? Is Peace Corps about a form of public diplomacy and international understanding? Is it both? Why is it important for the United States to continue to have Peace Corps? 
I think that, you know, Peace Corps talks about their three objectives in terms of what's being done in terms of actual service to the countries where Peace Corps programs are underway and the exchange that takes place, improving the understanding between an American culture and the host government culture. But really, I think the importance of Peace Corps is multiplied so much greater by those Americans that then come home really changed by the experience and really coming to understand that they've gained, we've gained so much more than what we were able to contribute as volunteers. I think that's true probably for most returned Peace Corps volunteers. But I also think in some ways it's it's even, Dan, a bigger issue than just Peace Corps. Because I think that there is something that should be discussed across the country in terms of revitalizing the idea of national service national service and sacrifice. And I think an important part of Peace Corps is giving a channel for people to offer that type of national service for one year, two years. Now there are some other modalities. I think uh, there's a crisis core opportunity within Peace Corps where people can go for a smaller obligation of time. But just any type of opportunity for service where you really have to set aside your own individual priorities and do something to benefit the country, to benefit other people, to benefit other communities can can really mean so much. I think we lost a big opportunity after 9-11 to not do much more in terms of asking the American people to undertake some level of sacrifice and national service. And I know that during the political campaign, there was some discussion in some of the, uh, the Democratic campaigns, I think the Buttigieg campaign, the Sanders campaign, talking about national service. It's something that I hope uh, the Biden administration uh, might seriously look at as something that could really benefit the social development and maturation for many young people. So tell me about, in your mind, did you have to learn any language other than Spanish? I'm assuming you learned Spanish when you were in Ecuador. I had studied uh, some Spanish in high school, but really the amount of Spanish learned in those circumstances was very limited. As I tell the story in my book, I was able to understand reasonably well folks in Quito during training initially as I was undergoing additional Spanish language training and intercultural training. But then I went out to my site, which was in coastal Ecuador. And uh, for a few weeks, I couldn't understand a single word of my host family in terms of the way they talked, because they talked with a completely fluid dropping of consonants and everything. So it was a big cultural uh, exchange and experience in that sense, in terms of truly learning the language. But later on, when I went to work for a foster parents plan, working in the mountains of Ecuador, I was exposed to other languages. I was exposed to variants of Quechua. I was able to learn some Quechua. Later on, when I I went to work for uh, Esperanza in the Chaco of Bolivia for five years, I was exposed to Guarani and other indigenous languages. And I came to realize the importance uh, in terms of helping people retain and build on their cultures of these tribal and indigenous languages, not just the official languages of the country. Not to mention, of course, uh, the difference between living and thinking in English as opposed to within uh, a, a former colonial language like Spanish or French. So you, you did get some exposure to these other languages. I mean, I wouldn't say you're not necessarily fluent in Guarani, but you had some exposure to it? I had some exposure to it. I learned a bit of uh, Quechua as well. I think I can vaguely remember a little bit like Imashutikangi, I mean, Imanaja, things like what's your name and how are you and things like that. 
I've forgotten a lot of it. But uh, I think it was important in terms of being able to go beyond the um, opportunities of communication within a language like, like Spanish. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Because I think, you know, I, I'm still taken by the book. I think one of the most influential book I've ever, one of the 10 most influential books I've read was The Ugly American, which was published in 1958. And John F. Kennedy gave it to all the other 99 members of the U.S. Senate. And the Peace Corps is a product of that. AID is a product of that. The Green Berets are a product of, of, of The Ugly American. So, you know, having folks who can go out to far-flung places be exposed to languages. And so I think part of the Peace Corps is to be able to do do some of that. Uh, I've also been of the view that the fact that you stayed is quite interesting in the region. I'm of the view I'd like to see a significant percentage of Peace Corps volunteers who go to Africa stay in Africa. I'd actually like to get offer folks who, especially in the Peace Corps, if we, ought to, we ought to set aside some kind of accelerated 60-day MBA program and a $25,000 loan and a 10-year visa in that country if you've learned a language to say, we'll give you a little bit of business training, we'll give you your work papers, and we'll lend you a small loan. And we'd like you to go start a small business in Ecuador or start a small business in Africa. What do you think about that as an idea to try and get people who've been invested there to do something? Certainly working in the NGO space or AID is a great thing. But I, I'd love to have a cadre of Americans who make their fortune in emerging markets. Well, you know, we learned a lot and as we created a family living in different countries. It required uh, certainly a certain amount of sacrifice and, uh, you know, overcoming some difficult experiences for my wife, who I married uh, while in Peru, and for our daughter. But our daughter basically grew up in different countries in Latin America and Africa, except for a period of about three years, I think, kindergarten to second grade that she was back in Falls Church, uh, Virginia. And uh, it was always amusing to us that uh, some years later, uh, she was going to a, uh, I think it was a seminar program at Columbia University, something that they offer towards the end of the high school years. And uh, she traveled there actually from Angola. And uh, they were referring to her constantly when we were reaching out uh, to try and get into contact with her during that experience as the African girl. You know, our daughter now is, is living in South Africa. She certainly has come to uh, love Africa, to particularly love South Africa, where she's spent a fair amount of time over the years. But she has, you know, clusters of friends from all over different African countries, from different Latin American countries. And I think that having had those kinds of relationships over time with people from other countries has been so important to helping her become the sort of adult that she is now. That's amazing. Tell me about how did you end up at USAID? Well, I was exposed to USAID while I was working in uh, Plan Ecuador. In fact, uh, it's interesting that one of my uh, key experiences I, I talk about in the book is when uh, the folks in the USAID Ecuador mission asked me to take a group of health promoters from one part of the country to the northern part of the country to see some of the work of the Baha'i radio station north of Quito in terms of what they were doing in social and economic development. Uh, but then I, I had an opportunity as I was wrapping up five years in Bolivia, uh, a mentor of mine, Paul Hartenberger, who I would come to have contact with again over the years in his work as a health officer in USAID, encouraged me to apply to be a personal services contractor 
for a two-year period in USAID Peru to get to know USAID from within. He, he knew that I was somewhat suspicious of working for the U.S. government and USAID. And one of the things I always remember from Paul is how uh, when he saw how skeptical I was of the idea of working for USAID, he said to me, no, 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 you should do this. You should go to Lima, work within USA Peru for two years. It'll be a good way to learn the folk ways of the enemy, he told me. Wow. <laughs> and this is uh, someone who, uh, you know, of course, had worked uh, a career within USAID himself. As it would turn out, I would work those two years in, in uh, Peru. And then some years later, I would come to uh, join USAID as a career officer after USAID went through a dry spell in the 1990s where it had carried out reductions in force and had stopped hiring people. I came in in the first, uh, they called it uh, new entry professional class in 1999 yeah. and uh, ended up spending a bit over 20 years with USAID uh, at that point. Much to my wife's regret, I will confess, Dan, because I think my wife, uh, while I was back in the States for a time with my wife, I took the Foreign Service exam to join the State Department at the end of 1996. And I passed the test, and uh, then I did the orals, and I passed that. But I just couldn't bring myself to join the State Department. There was just something about the way the State Department worked, the, the sense I had in terms of the job compared to something like USAID. It just didn't attract me. And I stayed on their roster for two years, being invited to join A100 classes as time, uh, as things would play out, until uh, in the end, USAID gave me a job offer to come in in 1999. Tell us where you served with AID. Well, with AID, my first post was in Central America. The, the prior experience in Latin America gave me a choice early on between El Salvador and Nicaragua. I was interested in the situation of Nicaragua, which was still at that point in recovery from the uh, earthquake that they'd suffered in the 1970s under uh, Somoza before the Sandinista revolution. Much of Managua was still in ruins at that point. We're talking about late 1999, early 2000. But I sensed that there was an air of, of uh, optimism for the future and great things that were possible. And I ended up going to Nicaragua and staying there for five years, first as the health officer and then as the office director for health and education and, and taking a leadership role in terms of the Hurricane Mitch recovery program. Wow. And then tell me about, didn't you serve, you served in Africa and the Middle East? I did. I served uh, following uh, Nicaragua. I served for several years in Angola. I was asked by the agency to go there as a special favor. Angola was just recovering from a civil war and my family went there with me. I'd been to Angola under World Bank auspices as a consultant back in the mid-1990s and had had to be pulled out at that point because things had gotten hot in terms of the civil war there. But we went to Angola and we loved Angola. We loved the Angolan people. And then from there we went to Nigeria. And I was asked to go to Nigeria basically to kind of ride herd on interagency tensions between USAID and uh, the Centers for Disease Control, which were unfortunately in a, a bit of a conflict and competition as a part of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR. They needed someone with greater experience to head up the, the USAID effort there in Nigeria. And then after Nigeria, I was called to Iraq for the first of what would end up being two tours in Iraq. I was initially part of a provincial reconstruction team in the northern part of Iraq, uh, and that was really an eye-opening experience, being in a situation of 
potential violent uh, extremism, trying to look for ways of prevention and control of violent extremism. Friends of mine who were in Afghanistan at the time asked me to spend a number of months in Afghanistan following my first Iraq tour to work in the southern part of the country, uh, helping out in Kandahar, which was another center for violent extremism uh, at that point. And I served as a senior USAID officer uh, there for a chunk of time. I went back to Iraq as the deputy mission director after that. And then uh, ultimately we rounded out things by going to South Africa, where I served first as the, the bilateral deputy mission director and then became the acting regional mission director. I was there for about three years or so uh, with my family. That's amazing. Talk about the value of USAID and its contribution. I mean, you've worked in some fragile states and some non-fragile states. Let me just start with this. Does foreign aid work, Alonzo? I know, I know it does, but tell me why foreign aid works. Foreign aid is tremendously important. That's not to say that uh, there hasn't been plenty of mistakes made over the years, but I think some of the bum rap that foreign aid has received I think much of their criticism was directed more perhaps to some of the operations of multilateral organizations like the like the World Bank. But I think USAID as a bilateral development organization, certainly in the area of health, has played such a critical role. I mean, comparing the conditions of uh, health and social welfare in countries when I started out my work in the 1980s, with the last 10 years, shows just a vast improvement in terms of infant mortality, in terms of the maternal mortality ratio, in terms of things like child spacing, and consequently the, the well-being of families. I think all of that has been extremely successful. Where things have been more problematic and more difficult in terms of foreign aid, and where I think there's been more of a learning curve, has been in the area of uh, economic growth and in terms of tackling questions like democracy and governance. And I think uh, part of the reason for those limitations has been uh, uh, some of the constraints put on the work of uh, development practitioners, development uh, foreign service officers by a Congress that has been very determined to place uh, a tremendous burden that has grown and grown over the years of uh, accountability, reporting, and transaction costs for host governments in terms of trying to ensure that every U.S. dollar is spent wisely. And of course, we all want U.S. dollar assistance spent wisely. But in fact, I think the burden of so much of these uh, systems that have been in place in terms of trying to uh, constrain things like theft and misuse of resources has actually contributed to a misuse of resources. I, I remember uh, a friend of mine who was the head of the, the uh, National AIDS Agency in Nigeria. He came to be the Minister of Health of Nigeria and eventually the head of UNFPA for the United Nations, Babatunde Oshota Mehen. I remember him talking to me around the time of a visit by Bill Gates to Nigeria. I think this was back in... Uh, 2008-2009, and sharing with me the tremendous cost to the Ministry of Health of Nigeria of having to respond to something on the order of 30 or 35 different reporting systems for all the different tracks of money they received of assistance from different donors, be they bilateral donors 
or multilateral donors. And it really reduced what could be effectively done by, uh, you know, a Ministry of Health that had to spend a significant amount of time in terms of just reporting back to the, the donors. I think that there's been also some important steps forward with ideas introduced uh, by the former administrator of USAID, uh, Mark Green, on things like the journey to self-reliance, where uh, USAID has taken a, uh, a phrase, the idea of working yourself out of a job, which I think was really more originally uh, part of the whole Peace Corps ethic, and transposing it across USAID. And while it was criticized by some, I think the idea of uh, building a foreign aid approach to development assistance where you truly are trying to transfer the skills and capabilities to different governments and uh, different organizations so that you can work yourself out of a job, that you really can ensure that local governments are putting in resources to match what's coming from uh, international donors is a, a worthy goal. And I'm hoping that the, the new administration will find ways to, to build on that approach from Mark Green and improve it. Great. What are, you, what are you optimistic about, Alonzo, going forward in terms of global development? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic on the one hand with the understanding, the appreciation for the need to address large global problems that I think is certainly true from among the, the millennials and the Gen Zers compared to maybe the boomers in past years. I think that there's been a, a growing understanding that when we talk about listening to the voice of host governments and we try and look to different institutions, civil society organizations in countries where we're trying to address great need, now, we've got to be aware that many times it's the voice of elites from those countries that are often uh, the most uh, easily heard. And we've got to find a way of improving our ability to strengthen the voice and visibility of those that are least likely to be heard, those that uh, truly represent the most needy in the countries that we're trying to reach. I think there is a, a growing recognition over the last 10, 15, 20 years about the need to not only work with large national governments, but also to work with local and municipal governments and to find ways to marry partnerships between the private sector with those sort of local municipal government efforts. That was something that actually we we built on in Angola, we built on in Nigeria, and I think there have been some important uh, successes over the years. I think we've got to look for ways to build on uh, as well our own governmental architecture where perhaps uh, 15, 20 years ago, there was a rush by some people within the uh, George W. Bush administration to replace USAID with a, a wholly new model of things uh, such as what could be offered by new organizations such as the Millennium Challenge uh, Corporation, and look for now how we can build on the experience of uh, organizations like the MCC with the new U.S. Development Finance Corporation and USAID so that our investments really come together in a stronger synergy than, frankly, what might have happened in the past. I think that the current administration has a, a much more a holistic view of that compared to uh, what might, might have existed uh, even 10 years ago. How about China? If I said to you, China and foreign aid in the United States 
How should the U.S. think about how it engages in global development in an era of great power competition, Alonzo? Well, you know, that that brings up some very important concerns. I I recently finished uh, Admiral Stavridi's book. 2034. Yeah, sobering view of things. And of course, while I was in Angola and Nigeria, I saw some of the effects of Chinese uh, investment even at that time and, and how it was being challenged and, and rejected in certain cases by some countries in Africa because of the poor quality of the type of assistance that was being received. But I think we've got to look for ways of building not an antagonistic great power competition in terms of how we're doing development assistance, but we've got to be proactive in terms of looking for ways of building on the uh, strengths and abilities that we have along with what the Chinese offer. I know it's a difficult thing to undertake. I know that in the prior administration, there was a lot of focus on the idea of countering the, the effect of malign actors looking to you know, what was happening from the Kremlin as well as the competition with China. But I think now we've got to look at things in a more constructive way and uh, to be able to build on really what are the different capabilities that our assistance can offer compared to that of the huge investment that clearly has been happening from China. And how about, do we have to change our playbook at all? I I think that uh, we're going to have to be very flexible and look at ways in which uh, we're making ourselves uh, much more willing to not just go it alone, but really look at things in a more collaborative, multilateral way. We we have made some important steps in that direction. I think the the moves by... uh, Mark Green's uh, administration at USAID to support things like co-creation of development programs, to design new development programs over a longer term calendar and involve more actors in that, I think represent a new way of thinking. And I think we need to raise up, a, frankly, a new generation of procurement officers who are willing to uh, embrace error. You remember Susan Reichley? Yeah, she was great. Over at IYF. I mean, I remember Susan when she was the counselor at uh, USAID and how she would talk about, along with Ra Shah, about embracing error and, uh, you know, being willing to look at our mistakes and build at them. And, And that was an important message. But I think really at the time it was just lip service. I think now we've got to really be willing to be creative, be flexible, try new things. And if those things don't work, be prepared to, to move on with our host government partners and our multilateral partners to, to look for other ways to address uh, the large kind of challenges that we're facing in these next 10 years or so. Well, this is great. I want to congratulate you, Alonzo, on this really important book. This is gr- I'm very grateful uh, you would take the time. I think congratulations on this. And uh, Let's stay in touch. I, I, it's great. I, I want everyone to remember the Andean Adventures, a memoir by Alonzo Wind. Uh, Alonzo, thanks for your time today. Dan, thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to announce, by the way, that the Audible version, the audio version, is now up at Amazon and I think in the iTunes store as of yesterday. And uh, I'm working on it. And I hope to publish this year African Adventures, talking about uh, some interesting stories from my experiences across Africa. Excellent. Thanks so much and congratulations. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, 
The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 